Hi everybody, JP here. Want to take a moment to tell you about St. John Associates. They're a great recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They've been around for over 30 years and they match thousands of physicians with practices and healthcare systems across the country. They have an experienced team that works in all specialties, including neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery, and they have close connections with employers across the country. They will look at your CV, They'll match you with practices based on your preferences for geography and lifestyle. And all of this comes at no cost to the physician job applicant. So just visit them at stjohnjobs.com slash nspod to get started with your job search today if you're in the market. Again, that's stjohnjobs dot com slash nspod. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here today with the first installment in our short series on fellowships that we uh, announced last week going into this new year in 2023. Today, we are just delighted to be joined by Dr. Vasis Srinivasan. He's a, attending at the University of Pennsylvania, a program that as any listeners know, Dr. Wang and I love and respect very much. Um, he's in the neurovascular department there, and we're going to be talking about how he got his subspecialty training to be a neurovascular specialist. Dr. Srinivasan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we were just talking a bit about your background and, and kind of your trajectory through the places you've lived and, and where you got your education and training. So for our listeners, maybe you could introduce yourself and let us know where you're coming from and the different places that led you to your recent fellowships and now your position at Penn. Sure thing. Uh, well, I grew up in the Bay Area in California. I became a Warriors fan as a kid. Uh, it's been a good time to be a Warriors fan. Then I came here to be uh, in Philadelphia for undergrad and medical school at Drexel, where I started becoming an Eagles fan. It's also a good time to be an Eagles fan. I went to Baylor uh, College of Medicine down in Houston for my neurosurgery residency, which I finished in 2020. And then I spent two years at the Barrow Neurological Institute, uh, one year with Dr. Lawton uh, doing uh, uh, cerebrovascular and skull-based surgery, and then a year uh, with the endovascular team there, uh, Dr. Philippe Albuquerque, uh, Ashu Jadav, and Dr. Andrew Dupre uh, doing endovascular training. Uh, and then I just started here recently at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, Vasish, that's such a great uh, pedigree. And shout out to a lot of friends out there, including Cheng Yoon at uh, Penn, who's now your partner. Also, Philippe Albuquerque, who's a good friend of mine. We were residents together at USC. So obviously doing two years on, and you did seven years of residency, right? So that's two plus seven is nine? That's right. Wow. So that's a long haul. And I know that the, the folks out there thinking about doing endovascular, open vascular, are all faced with this. Tell me about what it's like to face that because that's that's a lot of training, right? Nine years. Yeah, I, I made that decision uh, earlier in my training after talking to some mentors, uh, especially as a PGY2 and PGY3. I already had a keen interest in cerebrovascular and endovascular. And I could see that over the course of my training, projecting forward, I knew that it would be challenging to, to really master open cerebrovascular surgery within that time. And I felt that a separate year was needed. And, I've, and I could see that added time in endovascular would, would expose me to new techniques and, and new uh, ways of thought within this burgeoning field. 
And so I felt like some extra time on that end would also be helpful. And so I, I, I had skipped a year in, in college and, and saved some time there. So I said, why not spend it on the back end uh, doing two fellowships? Now, I, I'm sure that among your friends and colleagues who are your contemporaries and, and also pursuing the subspecialty of neurovascular, um, you, you've got to talk to each other. And I'm, I'm sure you, you compare notes about where you go to get your post-grad training, so to speak. How common is it to do both of these fellowships, the endovascular and the open vascular at the same institution? I imagine from your standpoint, it's very convenient logistically. You don't have to move again. You don't have to get to know a new hospital system, new badges, new you know, epic access or, or what have you. But I, I personally don't know anyone who's done two fellowships at one place like that. So I guess two questions, is that common to your knowledge? And then also, what was that experience like staying in the same hospital in the same department, but shifting your role and shifting your primary mentor during your time in training? I don't think I don't it's think um, super common. I, I think it's probably there, there's only a few places in the country that can offer very high level endovascular and open vascular training. To some extent, they pull from each other a little bit, right? There's a balance. And when, when trying to seek a fellowship, I, I thought, do I want to go to a place that kind of has uh, a bias one way or the other and, and spend time trying to catch up with enough uh, open or endovascular cases that way over the course of a longer time, or kind of two fellowships within the same place, but kind of very separated. And, mm. uh, and I thought that since the Barrow offered this, uh, that this would be a good option. But uh, there, there are, I think, the much more common paradigm is to spend place at a time with surgeons that are all dual trained or uh, a combination of neurosurgeons that are dual trained and then neuro neuroradiologists and, and interventional neurologists. And to kind of get some additional experience with open cerebrovascular during a primarily endovascular fellowship. Mm. That's very interesting because when I, I think about it, and you've got to correct me if I'm wrong, I, I could very well be entirely wrong about this and dated, but I always felt like if you looked at any individual neurovascular surgeon, dual trained, they tended to be much stronger on one side versus the other. And, and I guess the way you might figure this out is if there's a case with relative clinical equipoise that you would choose endo versus open or open versus endo, so to speak. And being at a place like the BNI, you're seeing both sides with two groups of fairly diametrically opposed, at least on ideology, uh, surgeons, meaning Philippe on the one side and his group, Mike Lawton on the other side. So tell me, am I wrong about this? Am I outdated? Do you really need to do both these fellowships and become an expert in the pathology and not the technology? Yeah, I actually saw that as a as a relative strength. I wanted to to train with people who were masters with one hand behind their back, so to say. And then, you know, hopefully at the end of fellowship, now I'm in practice, I've worked out each arm separately, and then I can I can bring them together and, and see what works in my practice, both here in the place that I am, and then me as a surgeon as I continue to evolve. Where do my predilections lie? Where does my surgical skill lie on, on one, or one end or the other? And then how does that change over time? I think that the, the equipoise, as you said, is, is truly a moving target. It's not what it was even at the beginning of my training. You know, I'm, I'm a, a young attending and the field has changed dramatically from when I first became interested in cerebrovascular as a, as a PGY1 and 2. So 
I think that and any individual surgeon clearly probably does have a bias, but training with people on either end of that bias helps you to uh, limit what your own personal bias is in terms of you, you don't have to choose one or the other because you don't have the ability to do it. You can choose one or the other because within your hands, one is stronger, one is the other, or that is the right technical answer and you're able to deliver both. That's very interesting. Um, you, you know, I will similarly uh, declare that I am by no means an expert in the, the field of neurovascular surgery and particularly in the landscape of the training and licensure for the various procedures and, and of course, walking in the two worlds that you do with the endovascular and the open vascular surgery side. But among my friends who are interested in neurovascular as a subspecialty and who are starting to pursue that subspecialty training, a lot of people who still have dreams of skull-based surgery, who want to clip aneurysms, uh, treat AVMs, do bypasses, and will pursue endovascular training as an adjunct to be dual trained, to do their own angios, and to be more marketable professionally, some of my friends have concerns because they're going to get this endovascular training, they're going to be able to do angios, and thus they, they fear that inevitably they'll be stuck with stroke call wherever they work. And on the one hand, that can make you very marketable to join a practice. But on the other hand, if that's if you're not interested in treating stroke, if that's not the pathology that gets you out of bed in the morning, here you might be saddled with an excessive amount of stroke call simply because you can do angios. Um, so I wonder, what does that actually look like for you now that you're on the other side of fellowship? Um, it, you know, Presumably as a neurovascular surgeon, you got the open training as well you want to treat more than just ischemic stroke. When you were looking at jobs, when you were looking at positions, how much emphasis is there actually on the stroke call coverage because you can do an angio? Is that something that on the resident side of things we fear, but maybe there's not so much beneath that? Or is that a real consideration when you're looking at the job landscape? I think it's a, a real consideration. And the truth is whether you want to or not, stroke is going to get you out of the bed in the morning, whether it's out of enthusiasm or because duty calls. Right. Uh, I will say that I had a very similar fear uh, about the lifestyle and uh, ischemic stroke call kind of taking over my practice when I was earlier in residency. Because like many people uh, who got interested in cerebrovascular, you know, open aneurysm surgery is what drew me to the field. And then I started to think of you know, doing thrombectomies as kind of a uh, eating my vegetables so I could, you know, have the the dessert of, of aneurysms. But as I started to gain that technical proficiency in doing those procedures and actually seeing the impact I had on those patients, I've really come around to liking stroke call and liking thrombectomies as a procedure specifically because uh, because of that massive impact you can have on patients. It's it's a very satisfying procedure. People do very well, as you know. It's a you know high impact procedure in terms of quality of life, and uh, and I've come around to really enjoying the technical aspect of that procedure and and being interested in the physiology. Part of that, I think, was training with a neurologist in my endovascular training. They see things very differently and are excited about stroke. This is one of the most exciting things they get to do is a thrombectomy, and so Dr. Jod have really kind of changed my mind into enjoying stroke call. Uh, but that being said, on, for your second question about what does that mean on the job market, it certainly makes you more marketable, but you can market yourself and and tout whatever strengths that you want within your tool belt once you have the tools. And so 
I was one of you know many, many people. There's a lot of people with this kind of training, uh, whether neurosurgeons or other specialties, in terms of taking stroke call. But what was the differentiator for me on the job market was uh, my experience in research and, and kind of bringing an academic bent to cerebrovascular. Uh, I, I run a translational uh, animal research lab here at Penn now, and that was something I had done in residency. So that was something interesting I brought to the table on the job market. And, and then this extra time that I had spent learning open vascular for departments that were looking for a young open vascular person, you know, there, there weren't a ton on the market with, uh, with that kind of uh, experience. That's really interesting. And, and honestly, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's quite encouraging to hear, A, the, the fact that you openly say that, yeah, you had those concerns as well. It's very refreshing to hear that it's not just people in early or mid-residency, but even going into your fellowships, you had those same concerns. But it's also very encouraging to hear that uh, that that page kind of turned for you and now you have a more positive approach to thrombectomy. I mean, obviously, people listening are probably familiar with literature. I mean, it's number needed to treat for a thrombectomy, I think, is two for 90-day clinical improvement. I mean, it's one of the most effective treatments we have. But it, so it's, it's kind of ironic that it's something that is so dreaded by people who pursue endovascular training to treat other pathologies, as you said, we all dream of treating aneurysms, but, but then wind up with those middle of the night emergencies. Um, you know, my program director, Ricardo Fontes says, you want to be a spine surgeon commander, get used to seeing obese patients. Or if you want to go into pediatrics, if, you know, you want to treat every pediatric tumor in the country, get used to treating shunts. So I, I guess treating strokes, middle of the night, middle of the day is par for the course for someone who wants to be a neurovascular surgeon. Uh, and and who pursues endovascular training. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more, though, since we're kind of touching on marketing the skills that you get out of training with and designing the job that you have, that, that's really impressive and, and very encouraging that you have a lab straight out of your fellowship and you have a truly dedicated subspecialty role there at Penn. I'm curious, what does your day-to-day look like or a given week in your practice um, what percentage of the patients you see each week are in fact neurovascular and within your subspecialty focus versus, you know, you're new to town, you're new as an attending, you're building a practice. How many general patients are you seeing? How much general call are you taking? So here at Penn, uh, the vascular folks are in a separate vascular call pool and, and that's a, that's a busy call. Uh, it's, uh, three endovascular specialists at, at our main hospital, which is Hospital University of Pennsylvania, HUP. And so I'm one of three. There's two neurosurgeons that are in that call pool and uh, one uh, radiologist. And then, so me and uh, my senior partner, Jan Burkhart, split our, our call 50-50 for the open vascular side of it. So either whenever our radiology partner is on, uh, one of us is also available for open vascular in case he feels like a case needs to be crossed over or you know needs a hematoma evacuation or something. With uh, the overall practice, I do have a, a truly subspecialized cerebrovascular practice with a slightly expanded indica- you know, uh, a definition of what you may call cerebrovascular. So uh, we do any of the uh, intracerebral hematoma evacuations um, that come to our service. So that falls within our purview. And you know, as needed, uh, some of those patients are getting diagnostic angiograms as well. So that falls uh, within our service. And then... Uh, We've started to take care of the majority of chronic subdural hematomas as well. As you know, there are ongoing trials for evaluating uh, MMA embolization for chronic subdural hematomas. So 
those patients also kind of naturally fall into our service as well. Uh, so between those and then the occasional hydrocephalus patient who's, who's part of the vascular team, those, that kind of rounds out my service. And so uh, it, it, I, it is truly what I would consider a pure cerebrovascular practice. Now, Vasish, as you know, listening to this podcast, we're no strangers to controversy. So tell me, and don't be political here, which is the harder fellowship? Uh, at, at least how it was for me, I think the endovascular fellowship was was harder. Uh, you know, lifestyle-wise, I was definitely busier. Um, there were longer days, longer nights, um, and it was a, a challenge for me to try to learn the preferences and styles of three different attendings with kind of three different, slightly different approaches, at least, uh, to the same pathologies. And so that was, uh, that was a bit harder. Coming off of my chief year, I felt uh, very comfortable on the sur- microsurgical side, but I hadn't done too much endovascular for a, a year or so going into my endovascular fellowship. So, you know, I had to shake off a little bit of rust uh, to get back on track. Yeah, you know, I, I find that the uh, I, I told the endo people that they're like the new spine, that, um, you know, everybody's doing something new. The M&M, when the endo guys get up, it's always like, I'm not even sure it was a complication, but they want to show us what they did. And it's kind of <laughs> like, it's kind of like spine was 15 years ago, right? Like, oh, we did this. Look what we did. And everybody's got conflicts, but nobody discloses. It's 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 a lot like spine used to be, right? Um, I think I think you're right. I think that not just lifestyle, but I think every procedure is so boutique, whereas, and not to say that the skull base vascular or the open vascular is not rarefied and unique. It's just that that history is so much longer, right? There's so much more written about it. There's so much more that's been discussed already. Yeah, I, I think that's true. There, there, even over the course of that, that's the other thing that changed a lot. I felt like within my chief year where I wasn't doing too much endovascular and my open fellowship year, there were all kinds of new devices on the market um, that had already suddenly become almost the standard and, and or a very common device or catheter to use. And so there was, you know, a little bit of a catch up period too, not just technically shaking off the rust, but catching up with like, what, what's this new catheter? What's this new device um, at the beginning of my endo fellowship? If we could, you know, continuing to think about the the dual training that you have, and and we're kind of drilling into the endovascular side of things, which is something I I've been interested in as a part of general neurosurgical training recently. To my understanding, and from talking to people who were around at the time when neurosurgery moved to a mandatory seven years of training, part of the logic behind that move was to include endovascular training for all residents. And now uh, I think. People like Bill Caldwell at Utah are, are again championing the cause that uh, every graduating neurosurgeon should be able to treat stroke. So I wonder from your perspective as someone who just came out of training, spent two additional years, as we said, to get the subspecialty training that you have, what are your thoughts on that question? Do you think every graduating neurosurgeon should have privileges in the angio suite and should be able to do a thrombectomy? Do you view that as lightening the call pool for stroke or perhaps a threat to your business and your patient pool? Um, what, what do you think? Should it be a dedicated subspecialty fellowship trained skill? Or do you think any graduated neurosurgeon should be able to do a thrombectomy? Yeah, I mean, that, that's been a question. And I think um, 
Nick Hopkins and, and one of his cardiology colleagues at Buffalo published a very provocative op-ed uh, when I think right around when the Dawn trial came out, uh, you know, realizing that uh, there would be a huge potential burden of stroke call and, and that there just weren't enough subspecialists. And so the discussion at the time was, should interventional cardiologists be treating stroke? And, uh, and you know, they already have uh, enough interventional cardiologists peppered around the country and they have access to cath labs and they already have a network. And it, it's not that hard to just, you know, take a right turn and go up from the heart uh, to the brain. I, I guess I would prefer that, uh, you know, rather than interventional cardiology, it would be a specialist who understands the brain and has spent uh, their seven-year training thinking about the brain and spine and including the vasculature. And so I think the paradigm of having uh, all neurosurgeons, you know, potentially credential for stroke is reasonable. I don't think we're necessarily there yet, but uh, I, I'd say within my uh, time frame in residency, we were certainly at the point where not just be me uh, as a someone interested in the field, but my two co-chiefs who both went into spine or spine on peripheral nerve were both very facile at doing diagnostic angiograms and did the intraoperative angiograms for, you know, bypasses or AVMs that they resected as chiefs. Uh, so I think that's very feasible. And, and we're uh, certainly, you know, on that trajectory here at, at UPenn, um, you know, any of the open aneurysms uh, that I've done here as an attending, I have had the chief resident doing the uh, intraoperative angiogram with me. And so I think uh, all three of our chiefs are on track to at least gain some proficiency with that. So it does take a little bit more to do the to make the jump from diagnostic angiogram to be able to treat stroke. And uh, we know that there's probably a learning curve of about 50 cases to gain proficiency in stroke. And so if that is a um, a target that uh, organized neurosurgery wants to hit as a group, then you know folks interested. You know, driving the uh, educational component can certainly, you can tailor the educational um, curriculum for all residencies to, to hit that, that mark. And then I think all neurosurgeons come out with a very marketable skill across the board and whether or not, you know, someone uh, wants to use that in their practice, you know, it's up to them to, you know, either uh, offer to take that call or decline that call. But I think uh, having a little bit of a mix in the call pool of people who may not be full-time cerebrovascular, but are capable of safely treating stroke and then, uh, you know, mindful enough to hand off more complex cases or even the complex strokes uh, off to uh, partners who do it full-time, I think that's very reasonable. So do you think then that with a dedicated seven-year structure, there is enough time to have a a graduate of a seven-year program proficient in the angio suite as well as proficient in the OR with general neurosurgical procedures. I suppose that was, again, as I said, part of the logic of adding that seventh year was to have time for those additional procedures. But many programs have filled that time with one and a half to two years of elective uh, time. So in in your opinion, having gone through a program where you felt proficient and now you, you think some of your graduating chiefs are proficient in endovascular procedures, do you think there's sufficient time already with elective time built in? Or do you think that graduating someone who could be credentialed to do neurovascular angiograms might require carving time out from the other cases that a resident does to become a competent general neurosurgeon? I think it probably requires a little bit of uh, creative re-engineering of, of the, the, the call 
And, you know, for example, if someone is on operative backup call, uh, then they also come in to do any of the strokes that come in during that time. Mm. And, you know, uh, at, a, at a busy vascular center, which is true of most uh, neurosurgery residency programs, that may equal a, a stroke every other night or, you know, uh, three to four times a week. So at, at that kind of a clip, I think it's it's feasible in addition to some early dedicated time to gain proficiency with diagnostic angiograms. So that way, you know, when the time comes as a more senior resident, you're coming in for stroke call, then the attending knows you can do the diagnostic angiogram, then they can start walking you through doing the actual intervention for the stroke. So it's a bit of a a graduated responsibility, just like anything else. But uh, I think it's very feasible. I I, I think the programs that have already done this to some extent, I I think, uh, I know Penn State uh, kind of saw this coming a while ago. And and Dr. Cockcroft, uh, when he was program director and now chair, has kind of adjusted the the residency educational program to gain, get some endovascular experience, like almost every year or every other year through residency. And so uh, I think uh, graduates of that program are are probably ready, um, whether they're doing endovascular full-time or not. Okay. So Vasish, the the question that comes up, I talk to residents all the time. They always ask, do I really need to do two years, two separate fellowships? Can I just do the endo and I got enough open training in my program? What, what do they need to do? I mean, if the folks out there want to know, like these are years of their lives. It's a million dollars a year. It's a big deal, right? Do you really need to do the two additional years or even three I've heard now? Yeah, I, I had a very depressing lunch when I was a fellow at the Barrow with two of the, the spine fellows, Dr. Uribe's fellows at the time. We all kind of sat down and calculated the opportunity cost of our fellowship. So they calculated the opportunity cost of their one-year fellowship. And then I did the rest of the calculation for my second fellowship. And then I tried not to ever look at that number again. Uh, so I, I think it's a real consideration, but it really depends on what you want to do. I, I think you have to be very honest that it's not the same uh, doing a postgraduate fellowship in, in open cerebrovascular and then even doing an, a postgraduate endovascular fellowship. It does add value. It's just a matter of, do you need that based on your residency experience and then what you want to do in practice? Uh, so. Now, uh, based on CAST requirements, it is required to do uh, some postgraduate or post-chief year uh, in the angio suite to consider yourself a CAST-accredited endovascular graduate. So that's kind of required. And so uh, now I think what is kind of the optional part of that, if you will, is the, the open cerebrovascular experience. So I think it really depends a lot on your residency. If you're, if you're clipping 50 aneurysms still as a chief resident and not just you're part of that case, but you're really getting high level exposure in those cases and putting the clips on yourself and, and really feeling confident about that. Yeah, then I guess it's possible that you don't need it. Uh, I, I clipped many aneurysms as, as a chief resident and got to do a huge part of the case, but I felt like I, there was still a lot more in terms of variety of anatomy and pathology to see. I hadn't seen a ton of complex AVMs and and uh, hadn't been exposed to uh, brainstem cavernous malformations and things like that. And so those are the parts that I really felt like I gained a lot uh, in addition to, you know, garden variety aneurysms, just gaining a whole new proficiency with them. So uh, if you feel like in your practice, you're going to kind of have a little bit more of a general practice, but you, so you don't need to get that proficiency with open cerebrovascular, but you're going to have a primarily endovascular practice, then don't, don't spend that extra time. Um, And, or if you're going to, you know, have a 50-50 practice with 
with your lab, then, um, you know, perhaps you don't need that extra time either. It kind of have to, you know, follow, follow your heart, uh, where it is in terms of your expected uh, career trajectory. Okay. So I totally agree with you and I'm going to take one for the team now. And by that, I mean the spine team. So it always used to annoy me that there were these cranial guys out there and I'm not going to name names, but they said, well, I only do spine, but only on the VIPs. But they mostly did, I mean, basically exclusively skull base vascular. And it annoyed me because it assumed that if they could do spine as well as me, they just must be like a superior surgeon. In other words, there's no way someone can be better at spine than me if I do 600 cases a year than another spine surgeon, right? And then these cranial guys would do the occasional spine surgery. And I've never practiced any place like this, by the way. It's not my partner's. And it, it bothered me because it felt like, well, okay, so you're not really truly the expert at this, but you're a well-known neurosurgeon. So tell me about how this goes for you. And I know you're at Penn. I know it's super specialized under Dan Yosher there. How does that go in terms of, of what you do? Because I've seen lots of folks do the endo fellowship, the vascular fellowship, and they end up doing spine at the end. Yeah, I think there are folks like that. And, um, you know, I, I have uh, uh, good friends that were uh, senior in residency to me that kind of have a, uh, a generalist, uh, you know, spine heavy plus some endovascular type of practice. And I think it depends on where you are in the community, but uh, that can work um, for, for certain types of practices in certain communities. But I think on the high end, if you really want to do complex cases, you're trying to build a, you know, a wide referral base at a, at a tertiary or quaternary center, uh, then having a specialized practice makes sense. And I think we, you know, those in the know know who, which kind of practices you're talking about, Dr. Wang. Uh, but uh, yeah, here, here at Penn, uh, I, I think, uh, as you said, it, it is a very subspecialized practice. Um, you know, I would, I would gladly hand over any of the spine cases to my spine partners. Skull base case comes to me, you know, I'm happy to hand it off to the folks doing skull base tumors at a high level. And, um, you know, I'm sure that many of them are also competent and, and skilled enough to do, uh, you know, some aneurysms, but uh, they, they respect that um, uh, in the same way and, and would refer that patient to me. So I, I think I believe, it, you know, just philosophically in that sense of subspecialization and it, it, and it generally works out, uh, you know, in the long run. Well, Dr. Srinivasan, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I uh, personally, you know, I'm, I'm midway through residency and I, I've learned a lot about the road that you've chosen to walk and that, as I said, so many of my contemporaries and colleagues are pursuing as well a few steps behind you. Um, this has been very informative for us, for our listeners, um, about some of the technical parts of that process, but also just what it's like as a person going through it from the non-professional lens and kind of living that, that process. I am very interested, as are you, to see where uh, endovascular training and endovascular privileges go for the general neurosurgeon in the years or perhaps decades to come, and perhaps maybe a few years down the line, much as uh, Dr. Wang and his colleagues have been saying a neurosurgeon is a spine surgeon for years now, uh, you and your colleagues can be saying a neurosurgeon is an angiographer. So we'll uh, keep our eyes peeled uh, to see if, if that development comes and if the general neurosurgeons of the future are doing diagnostics and treating strokes as well. Um, but for now, we thank you for your time and sharing your experiences on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be part of the podcast. Disclaimer time. 
The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.